Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Adarsh Parthasarathy, and I am the host of KSDT's The Isle. Uh, you're listening to KSDT, UC San Diego's fiercely independent radio station. Um, if you remember last show uh, on a Tuesday, uh, we addressed the topic of um, judicial bias. And uh, we talked about a case, uh, East Bay Covenant Sanctuary versus uh, Donald J. Trump. And um, we talked about the ruling in that case. Now, of course, this was the case that um, basically stopped the Trump administration from uh, from instituting that uh, asylum ban. Um, the court said that the Trump administration cannot stop people from being accepted or uh cannot immediately deny applications for asylum just because uh, those entering, you know, those people applying have not entered the country legally. Um, the court said that federal law prohibits that. So um, the reason why we talked about that was, of course, to show that uh, when in the process of making a judgment, um, you know, obviously the, the court that this was decided in, the Northern Federal uh, District of California, um, this is a liberal court. It's going to be a liberal court. But uh, if you listen to last show or you read the opinion or you know something about it, then of course you know that this was a decision that was very, very obviously steeped in legal precedent, in stuff like statutory interpretation and, and simple logic, in fact. Um, and this kind of led into this broader discussion about judicial bias. So um, I'll recap that over the uh, Thanksgiving weekend, um, Trump and uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, had kind of a, uh, a I guess, a little disagreement over whether uh, the courts are inherently biased and, and specifically whether judges are biased uh, towards the presidents and the policies of the presidents under which they were appointed. Um, Robert says that there's no such thing as an Obama judge. There's no such thing as a Bush judge or a Trump judge or a Clinton judge. It's just people, you know, trying to work together to bring about the idea of justice that they see as, um, you know, that they see as the, as the most just, I guess. Um, but uh, Trump disagrees and he says he criticizes the Ninth Circuit specifically. Um, and anyway, uh, we'll put that aside. And basically the reason why we're bringing that up is because this topic of judicial bias is very important especially when it when it comes to the supreme court um people you know as probably what should be and you know of course what the framers intended to be the least political branch um the supreme court has become increasingly political in modern times um and that's because of the way that we deal with uh, judicial appointees um and it's of course because of the complex political questions that the court not political questions but the complex um political considerations that the that uh, rulings have um for example uh gay marriage uh, abortion rights privacy rights um these are all issues that have become highly highly politicized um and each political party has taken a very strong stand on these issues so now when we have you know a judicial nomination or when we have a case that touches on one of these hot button issues um, immediately the reaction of everyone is going to be that, oh, you know, th this is a political case. This is something that's going to be decided on pure politics. Um, but the fact is that actually, <coughs> excuse me, um, kind of sick here, but, um, the, the fact is that 
the case of deep, or rather the, um, the action of depoliticizing the judicial process, process starts well before the case even reaches the court. Um, and as we'll discuss on the show today, uh, there is ample evidence to discuss that politics is not the most important thing in uh, what, you know, what it takes to arrive at a judgment at the Supreme Court. Um, there's no one, no one saying that politics does not play a role. Uh, that would be very short-sighted. But it's also extremely short-sighted to think that politics is the only thing, is the only factor that influences a Supreme Court ruling. Um, and we're going to take a look at why. And uh, yeah, so let's start by discussing how does a case, first of all, get to the Supreme Court, right? Um, I mentioned briefly in the in the previous show that, uh, you know, Trump said that 79% of the Ninth Circuit cases get overturned. Um, and in a, <coughs> in a manner of speaking, this is true. Um, 79% of the cases do get overturned at the Supreme Court from the Ninth Circuit, but it's not 79% of their total cases. It's 79% of the cases that actually make it to the Supreme Court. Now, in recent years, <coughs> the Supreme Court probably gets 9,000 uh, appeal requests a term, or um, you know, sometimes they get cases that are actually under the original jurisdiction of the court, um, but that's an extremely rare case, and we're not going to take a look at that. Um, but 9,000 cases every term get sent to the Supreme Court, get requested, uh, someone, you know, files, files with the court, they want a, a reversal on a decision from a lower court, you get 9,000 of those. And every year, the Supreme Court <coughs> probably only hears about 80 to 90 of them. Um, in previous years, uh, the number of cases that was submitted to the Supreme Court was lower. Um, in my previous years, I'm, I really mean previous decades, early in the 1900s, and of course, the 1800s and before. Um, but the Supreme Court never really decided more than, you know, this this kind of low amount. And there's a big reason for that. There's a long process for a case to even get to the Supreme Court. So let's discuss that. Um, let's kind of trace the path of a case. So there are two ways that a, a case can get to the Supreme Court. Um, there's a state route and there's a federal route. So uh, the state route means that some cases, you know, that are involving state laws uh, say that I've been charged under some kind of misdemeanor in the state of California. I'd first go to my county court. I'd go to the county court of San Diego um, and I'd go through the whole state trial court process. Now, after that, there are some immediate appellate courts, so the states have their own appeals courts. So if I lose um, or I win and the government wants to appeal and they want to put me away, um, then what they're going to do is they're going to appeal to these intermediate appeals courts. And after that, if there's some further consideration to be made, <coughs> then... And, and likely, you know, at this point, it'll be a constitutional question that my rights were violated or something like that. It'll go to... Uh, the state Supreme Court. So it'll go to the California Supreme Court. Um, but then these cases after the state Supreme Court, if there's some further question, only then does it go to the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, and the federal route is very similar. Um, instead of these state trial courts, uh, each, uh, there are 94 federal districts in the, um, in the country. And, I'd first go to my federal district court. So say that I broke a federal law, then I would be tried in a federal district court. Then from there, 
um, if I wanted to appeal or the prosecution wanted to appeal, I would go to one of the 11 circuit courts. So for example, I broke a federal law. I, you know, shot someone in a post office, post office is federal land. Um, and I get charged, um, under federal law and I go to the federal district court, um, the Southern district court, which is actually based in San Diego. Um, then what happens is I I lose and I want to say, you know, I want to appeal this case. I claim some constitutional issue or whatever. Then I'm going to go to the um, ninth circuit, which handles the cases from all of these federal districts in California. If then there's a further question, then I'd go straight to the Supreme court. So the Supreme court gets about 30% of its cases from state courts and, um, about almost 30. Um, but generally over 65% of them come from these federal courts. Right. Um, and the, the thing is that this process kind of weeds out a lot of cases, right? So there are so many lower courts. There are so many decisions that happen before a case even reaches the Supreme court that it's very likely that the court may look at a case brief and say that this issue has been decided and that's it. We're not going to take any, you know, we're not going to consider this anymore. Um, but there are also other considerations in play here. Um, stuff like, you know, going through three different sets of courts at the state level, state trial court, intermediate appellate court, state Supreme court that could take years. And there are many different kinds of obstacles to a case that takes that long. Um, for example, the Supreme Court will not take a case unless it has something called ripeness. And that means that the issue has to be relevant at the current time. So if it took me three years to work through the state appellate courts and the state Supreme Court, maybe my case doesn't have ripeness and the Supreme Court is going to say, no, you know, this was resolved by three different courts before us and the ruling of the, of the lower court stands. We're not going to rule on this case. We're not going to hear it. Um, furthermore, um, I also need to have standing. So say for example, that I am the one suing someone and I go in and, you know, I, I sue someone because they, I don't know, they destroyed my house. But since then I've won the lottery. Um, <coughs> I bought a new house. Then it's three years later and I'm living happily, but I'm still suing this guy. The Supreme Court is probably not going to hear my case. In fact, no higher court is probably going to hear my case because there's no standing for me. to. There's no ripeness. There's no, there's no issue at hand. There's no current justiciable issue here, right? Because the issue has basically already been resolved with the passage of time. So in addition to the fact that several courts, several systems of courts come before the Supreme Court in nearly all cases, um, there were also different considerations that come into play when justices are deciding what cases to take for the docket. Um, there are many mechanisms to kind of refuse and decline to hear cases. Um, one thing, like I mentioned, is is the ripeness and the mootness thing. Um, but the other thing is that there is this mechanism of the court called the rule of uh, the rule of four. So while um, the, so. Uh, basically 
the court, you know, gen- generally has nine justices. Um, but the way that the court addresses the issue that if the you know minority ideology of the court wants to hear something, for example, right now we have uh, a minority liberal ideology, right? We have four liberal justices: uh, Kagan, Sotomayor, uh, Ginsburg, and Breyer. So these are the f- this is the liberal wing of the court. Say that they want to hear a certain case at the Supreme Court. There is this mechanism called the rule of four by which if those four justices agree, um, the case can be brought on the Supreme Court docket, even if the five conservative justices don't want to hear the case. And this is basically just to you know protect the ideological backgrounds of each of the justices and, and you know make sure that um, all cases which are relevant get a fair chance to be heard. Um, but there are also different mechanisms for refusing the case. Um, there are oftentimes cases that have just not been filed correctly. Um, you know, there are oftentimes cases that the court knows are going to cause a massive disagreement, and they refuse to rule on that um, because they don't think it's in the interest of the justice or the stability of the of the justice system and the legal system to have a Supreme Court that's so deeply divided on a particular issue. Um, Sometimes the court will observe something called judicial restraint, um, which means that uh, they want to exercise basically restraint in how much they're changing the law. If I went through every single level of the state courts and they all ruled the same thing, the Supreme Court is unlikely to take my case because they will say, this has been ruled on by three different levels of the justice system. If we take this case, we're likely going to agree with them. Um, and there's no sense in wasting the valuable time of the court in taking a case that clearly has one correct answer under the law, um, as established by the different, you know, judicial precedents over the history of the case. So these are kind of different things that limit the way that a case gets to the Supreme Court in the first place. Um, so how does this, (coughs) excuse me, how does this relate to the concept of judicial bias. Well, these mechanisms that prevent a case from getting to the court, first of all, are mechanisms that have been set in stone by justices over, you know, the 230 odd years of the court's history. Um, These precedents have been set in place by justices of varying ideologies. um, and, And it's not like they're written down in the constitution. They're not written down in the federal code or some judiciary act. Um, these are just stuff like judicial restraint, ripeness, mootness, uh, whether someone you know is seen to have appropriate standing. These are things that the court has established for themselves because they want to make sure that they are being fair to the lower rulings of other courts. Uh, the The justice's role is not to legislate. Um, the justice's role is basically to interpret what the law is. And that exercise of judicial restraint is oftentimes forgotten in discussions of, you know, justices, activist, so-called activist justices taking the law into their own hands and, you know, deciding what the law is. It's not an accurate representation of at least the way that ju- that judgments work at the at the level of the Supreme Court, um, because of all these kind of self-restricting doctrines that have been in place for nearly 250 years. Um, Now, there are, 
I, I obviously this is only one aspect of why people think that the court is politicized. Um, you know, Trump says, "Oh, the Ninth Circuit, they have an ideological motivation, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, but we've kind of observed that the, that at least at the Supreme Court, justices are not going to just take cases and rule on them and, and legislate from the bench. But there's an another question of the justice's ideology and what forms basically the the way that a justice is going to decide a case or you know what forms the way that they might interpret a certain issue and to simplify that by political position uh, whether a justice is conservative or liberal is highly highly simplistic um and let's let's basically take a look at that so there are many different things past um past policy preferences that affect uh, decision making right uh past whether i'm a democrat or republican if i'm sitting on the bench many things take precedence over that um when i'm writing a majority opinion or a dissenting opinion or trying to gather my fellow justices around a concurring opinion um and one of those things is life experiences and there's evidence in um in in opinions uh, from past court cases that kind of support this uh, for example uh of course most everyone has heard of roe v wade uh, the landmark abortion case which basically declared that women have a fundamental right uh, to choose abortion um at least during the first six months of pregnancy so what what's the kind of the life experiences part here well, uh, Justice Harry Blackman was the author of the majority opinion in this case. And Justice Blackman actually served as the chief lawyer for the Mayo Clinic um, before being nominated to the Supreme Court. So he worked with doctors, he valued doctors, and his idea of Roe v. Wade, of the issue in Roe v. Wade, was that the medical history of abortion was linked to the woman's decision to have an abortion. So this medical aspect basically entitled her to a consultation with a responsible physician um, in a very personal and private manner, right? So this was not a like a, a political perspective, right? He didn't say anything like, well, I, I don't know, that the, the government has a right to legislate or, or to restrict this issue or to, you know, defend this freedom. His position is very, very ideological, um, but from a personal standpoint, right? He says that his opinion is that from, from his experiences, from his, what he's observed with regards to medical consultation, doctors, and what he believes is a woman's individual right to choose is that the, these aspects are all linked together. Um, by contrast, uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, um, who, of course, was a woman, um, experienced gender discrimination, um, paternalism, all of these different horrible things that women in her time experienced when she was in law school. Um, so her opinion in another landmark um, abortion case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, in 1992, um, emphasize the kind of intimate and personal aspect of a woman's decision <laughs> and um, her spiritual kind of place in society. Um, again, this was not a, a political justification, 
right? It was a very personal justification. So in that way, life experiences act as a large influence on this kind of decision-making. Uh, group dynamics also act in a large part uh, towards these rulings. Uh, a current day example is the, um, th there was a very recent case actually regarding uh, frogs, um, interestingly enough. Um, Weyerhaeuser uh, Company versus the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, this is very recent. It was, I think it was just decided a couple days ago on um, the 28th or something like that, or um, maybe it was the 26th, but um, of November. And this court, bas uh, rather this case was basically discussing um, the definition of a critical habitat um, under under federal law, whether or not a plate okay so let me let me back up and explain this um there was a forest or there is a forest in louisiana um and there are some frogs in mississippi and the forest in louisiana can house these frogs these endangered frogs from mississippi um but they don't they don't currently so the u.s fish and wildlife service wants to classify this habitat in louisiana this forest that no frogs live in as a critical habitat for this dusky gopher frog um unfortunately the frogs don't actually live there so the court kind of took issue with <coughs> the definition of it as a critical habitat considering that nothing actually lives there yet um now th this would be an issue that normally you'd probably expect and important to note is that Kavanaugh actually could take no part in this decision. There were only eight justices who could hear this because Kavanaugh was not on the court at the time that this case was first presented to the court. Um, so this could have been a 4-4 decision easily. And if you just believe that judges voted based on political ideology, that's exactly what you'd expect. You'd say that, oh, you know, the conservative justices are going to vote with the corporation um, because they believe in small government and the liberal justices are going to vote with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because they think that this habitat deserves to be protected because of environmental rights, etc. But no, um, that's not what happens uh, because that ignores the important group dynamics aspect of what gets the Supreme Court to this decision, to their decisions. Um, actually, Justice um, Chief Justice Roberts negotiated a unanimous decision. Um, he <coughs> basically created the decision in very narrow language that tailored specifically to this case. Um, and the reason why he preferred an 8-0 decision over, you know, maybe a 5-3 or even worse, a tie, a 4-4 decision, um, is because it kind of ruins the effectiveness of the court if four out of five of these extremely qualified individuals don't agree on the issue. Um, the Supreme Court, in the words of, by the way, uh, Justice Sotomayor, is a family. Um, and she said that in reference to Kavanaugh entering the court. She, you know, the when... Um, when Clarence Thomas, he faced similar allegations of uh, sexual assault and stuff like that um, during his nomination process. But once he arrived at the court, I forget which justice told him this, but one of them told him, I don't judge you for what you've done out there. I judge you for what you do in here. And the reason is because these people serve life terms. They have to make friends, become family with these with people who are on an equal level with them. Part of this limited, um, this very small kind of 
club of of people who have such immense power um it it's kind of a misconception that these that justices on uh, you know different sides of the aisle are diametrically opposed um when in reality they actually do want to reach a close to unanimous consensus and we'll talk about the statistics later and how actually um they reach unanimous consensus more than a split decision but um basically that's kind of the the way that group dynamics act is that the justices want to agree um and they kind of go through this personal negotiation process to bring other justices to their point of view um the final thing that we of course have to discuss is is political partisanship and uh, ideology um but it is less important than you'd think and i'm going to bring up the example of scalia justice scalia notorious um, notorious conservative justice with very conservative views. No one can disagree with that. But, and of course, you know, you'd expect, as he did, that he voted 90% of the time with his conservative colleague, uh, Chief Justice Roberts. But he voted 65% of the time with Justices Breyer and Ginsburg, who no one would say are the slightest bit conservative when it comes to policies. So there's some overlap there. He's voted 90% of the time with Justice Roberts, a conservative, but he's voted 65% of the time with Justices Breyer and Ginsburg, who are liberal. So, I mean, 65%, that's a majority of the time. That, that's 15% more than just half the time. So that's a lot of the time that he voted with Justices uh, Breyer and Ginsburg. And furthermore, that's a lot of the time that Breyer and Ginsburg voted with Chief Justice Roberts. So you can see that these justices who are really on polar opposite sides of the ideological scale tend to agree a lot with legal issues because politics does not play as important a role as most people think in the justiceability of most of the cases in the Supreme Court. Um, that, you know, the statistics show it right there, and I'll give you more statistics later to support that as well. Um, so this is basically the limit of politics on constitutional interpretation. Um, you know, we discussed the fact that uh, there are different doctrines in place, the, uh, the judicial restraint doctrine, where justices don't want to rule on cases that have been decided extensively and discussed extensively by lower courts. Um, we've discussed the fact that the Supreme Court can't even hear most cases, um, so they can't be legislating from the bench. Um, and there are many non-kind non of non-political influences on justices that tempt them towards certain decisions, including the whole group dynamic thing, including the way that they prefer to agree. Um, <laughs> they, excuse me. They prefer to create basically a majority coalition um, in the ruling at the expense of a... Um, <clears throat> at the expense of just being an ideological bulwark and kind of just sticking it to, you know, the other, the other ideology of the court. So these are kind of the non-specific, uh, very personal influences of the justices. Um, but of course, there's no arguing that uh, justices at the Supreme Court have a sort of a pattern in the way that they rule. But again, I emphasize that this pattern is not politics. This pattern is actually different theories of constitutional interpretation, which are far separated from the simple ideas of being liberal and being conservative. Uh, so that brings us to kind of the halftime of the show. So I'm going to have to play the station ID or um, 
say the station ID and play one of our new ads here. Uh, so once again, you're listening to UC San Diego's KSDT, our uh, fiercely independent campus radio station. And right now you're going to listen to Not For Me uh, by Perfume Genius. I don't know what the song is once again. There's some guy from Seattle. So, uh, and he moved to New York. I don't know. Hopefully you like this. If not, don't blame me. again, my name is Adarsh Parthasarathy, and you are listening to The Isle on UCSD's KSDT radio station, um, the campus's fiercely independent radio station. Uh, just before that break, um, listening to that song Not For Me by Perfume Genius, uh, which wasn't terrible, actually, um, we were talking about uh, different influences on the way that Supreme Court justices make decisions influences apart from policy. Um, 
excuse me, as I mentioned before, I'm kind of sick and it's been a very wet day here in San Diego, um, which has not helped. But anyway, um, the, uh, the, there are many different influences. We talked about group dynamics, um, the way that justices want to agree. They want to convince their colleagues of their position and they vastly prefer, uh, you know, um, large majority decisions or even, you know, unanimous decisions would happen a lot more often than you'd think, um, over kind of these five, four split decisions and, and things that bring a lot more controversy to the legitimacy of the court, uh, to decide constitutional issues. So what we're going to now, uh, discuss is, is of course the fact that just because these influences play a role does not mean that these constitutional issues still don't have a political background, or rather these these decisions, these questions still don't have a clear cut way for a liberal justice to vote or a conservative justice to vote. Um, and people are going to argue that, you know, because these constitutional questions, these cases have an obvious way to vote for conservative justices and an obvious way for liberal justices to vote, that people are just going to take the law and manipulate it to their political liking. Um, but there's an answer to this too. And it's, <clears throat> I mean, it's simply the fact that not all constitutional issues are cut clearly uh, along ideological lines. Um, and it's shown by a vast, you know, very substantial percentage of constitutional decisions um, on which most, if not all justices agree. In fact, um, in every transition of the court, and by transition, I mean a justice leaving and one getting appointed, etc. Every single one since 1986, unanimous 9-0 decisions have been vastly more common than one majority, such as a 5-4 decision, right? Um, and, and this is statistically proven. You could take a look at the statistics, um, as I have. Uh, th this is just a fact. So, Let's take a look at why. Let's take a look at why this is the case. So I mentioned that not all constitutional issues are cut clearly across ideological lines. Um, in fact, uh, in the 2010 to 2011 Supreme Court term, um, about 48% of all constitutional cases, cases that address some kind of constitutional inquiry, um, were <coughs> excuse me, um, were decided unanimously. Um, and another 28% saw only one or two justices dissenting. So that means that for, um, for I mean, you we're talking almost three fourths of all of the constitutional cases that the Supreme court heard in this term, you had at most two justices dissenting. And that means broad ideological support as far as political ideolo ideology goes for the opinion. Um, and one one famous example of this is the case of Texas v. Johnson, which is whether uh, political demonstrators had the First Amendment right, the protected First Amendment right, to burn the American flag. Um, now Scalia uh, and uh, Scalia uh, Kennedy, they were both on the court in 1989 when this when this flag burning case was presented to them, um, and Kennedy was vastly more conservative in 1989 than he has been in recent years. Um, so you'd expect Scalia who remained conservative and Kennedy who was very conservative back then to have said, 
no, it's not. You can't burn the flag. But that's not what they did. They actually joined Justice Brennan in the majority opinion that flag burners were immune from prosecution. Um, and they write in their opinion that it actually like physically hurt them ideologically, um, as far as politically, ide- politically, to say something like flag burners have a protected right under the Constitution to burn the American flag. Um, and you can understand why, given their political ideology. But they have something else, and that something else is called a legal interpretive ideology. And that trumps their, polit- no pun intended, that trumps their political ideology every single time. By contrast, a liberal justice, John Paul Stevens, joined the dissenters, <coughs> and he said, no, this guy doesn't have the right to burn the American flag. So clearly, just simple political ideology, um, political questions are not what justices decide their cases on. Furthermore, there are different concepts of what are liberal, what is liberal and what is conservative. Um, for example, conservatives believe in judicial restraint strongly. They think that the judges should not be legislating from the bench. They think that justices should only have a, a limited influence um, and not be deciding cases willy-nilly. They should not be activist justices, right? Um, but to kind of establish conservative results, for example, to protect property rights from government regulation, they'd need to be activist justices in the sense that they need to alter established precedents to get their conservative ideology done. So it's not very easy to, to reconcile um, what is conservative and what is liberal, because these concepts in, in, uh, in the law and these concepts, especially in constitutional law, often have some overlap and some confusion. It's not just clear cut, like whether we raise taxes or lower taxes it's it's far more um, nuanced than that. <coughs> and furthermore, there are a lot of different kind of things pulling justices in several different directions. Um, and another case is Gonzalez v. Rake, um, which was basically uh, the, the, the case is um, Rake was growing marijuana in her backyard in California. Um, for her own medical marijuana use. And uh, California voters had uh, adopted a ballot that allowed people, um, this was in 2005, uh, to grow medical marijuana in their backyards for personal use. But anti-drug laws were enforced by a federal agency. Um, because federal law, uh, to this, uh, you know, to this day is not going to allow uh, marijuana as a legal substance. Um, And basically the idea was, can rake be punished under federal law? Does the federal government have any right to kind of step in here and regulate this non-economic activity? Um, Now, now what what happened? Um, The conservative justices, this has got to be a hard one for them. Because if you're conservative, what are you going to say? You're going to say small government. You're going to say protect state rights. States have the rights to legislate their own issues. But you're also strongly anti-drug, because that's how most conservatives are. You're very strongly anti-drug. So are you going to vote anti-drug, or are you going to vote states' rights? Which issue is more important to you? That is why ideology cannot be the sole determining factor when deciding a case. This is, this is a lot of different cases. I'll give you another example. is a Hamdi v. Runfield in, um, in 2004. Um, 
Hamdi grew out of basically these 9-11 terrorist attacks, um, and it challenged President Bush's authority to... <coughs> pardon me. It uh, challenged President's Bush, President Bush's authority to indefinitely detain American citizens um, in a military brig. Uh, this guy was an American citizen. He was detained in, like, military terrible conditions uh, because the president claimed that he was an enemy combatant. So... What happened here? You're a conservative justice, you're law and order type, you're like, this guy is a terrorist, we need to detain him in Gitmo, but uh, actually, no. Um, what did Scalia do? Scalia, he observed the concept of his constitutional, his legal school of interpretation, and he said that executive, the executive branch could not could not have this overreach. Congress is the only uh, part branch of government that can suspend the right <coughs> um, of uh, what's called habeas corpus, right? Um, now, this is an important distinction. Uh, habeas corpus is basically the idea that the, the person who is arrested has to be brought before a judge or into court um, and, and basically shown... The, the, the reasons for their uh, their detention and, and given some kind of a due process. Um, and this guy's an American citizen, so obviously he's entitled to these rights that are guaranteed by the Constitution and guaranteed by our federal laws. Um, and while Scalia may have been law and order in, you know, his personal life, and, you know, he may say, he may have said that... <coughs> and he was very anti-terrorist and, you know, he was for this kind of practice in a sense his judicial ideology which is the one that he voted with said that no this is an overreach of presidential power it is not what the framers intended in the constitution and i keep mentioning that he voted with his legal ideological background what does this actually mean um well there there it, this this whole discussion of it's not politics that causes justices to make decisions kind of begs the question, what actually does cause justices to make decisions? And it's really this legal interpretive school that I keep mentioning. So let's let's talk about that. There are different constitutional interpretive theories. Um, and these are basically theories that are widely accepted by the, the by the academic legal community um, to be valid ways of interpreting the Constitution, or at least widely practiced ways of interpreting the Constitution. Excuse me. Um, and one of these theories is called originalism. Um, that is the theory that uh, Scalia conformed to. Um, and his famous line about originalism is the Constitution is dead. Um, uh, because this contrasts with evolving constitutional theory, um, which basically says that the Constitution is a living, breathing document that changes over time. So originalists say that interpretations of the Constitution, um, and furthermore of the law, should be true to the words of the people who set down that law, and furthermore the assumptions of the era in which they wrote that law. So if the word privacy, um, well, let me think of a real example. Say that the, the, that the phrase free speech um, was 
very much known to in not include the written word in the time of the framers, then an originalist may say that no, this this is not a protected right like writing is not a protected right obviously this is not the case but just as a hypothetical example if in 1789 when the constitution was ratified people didn't see writing as a form of speech then an originalist might say that writing is not protected under the first amendment of the constitution um an evolving constitution uh, constitutional uh, theorist might say something like writing may not have been a recognized form of speech then but it is now and that means that we have to rule with basically these evolving impressions of what constitutes a fair evaluation of the constitution right um now this should not be confused with um <coughs> with another kind of theory called textualism um textualism means that you only look at the text of the Constitution. And that's not what Scalia would advocate, right? Um, looking at the text, looking at it very narrowly and saying, if it's not here, it doesn't count, is not what originalists say. Originalists say that you have to take the context of in which the law was made when evaluating the intent of that law. And the fair way to rule on what a law means is to make sure that you were honoring the intent of the people who wrote it, right? Um, so let's look at originalism in action. Um, there is a, a, a famous case, um, a famous Second Amendment case, <coughs> excuse me, uh, uh, called the District of Columbia v. Heller, in which um, kind of the question of Second Amendment rights came up. Um, basically the constitutional second amendment states that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the free security of, a, or being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. Um, and this amendment kind of generated these political passions at the time. Um, and for decades up until this case in 2008, many observers assumed that based on these kind of clues from old Supreme Court opinions that the amendment doesn't grant the right to individual gun owners outside the militia context. But a 5-4 majority of the Supreme Court held in District of Columbia v. Heller in 2008 that a gun owner individually could assert Second Amendment rights against the district's tough gun law. Now, now what, is the, what is the reasoning for this in originalism? Um, Justice Scalia wrote <coughs> the majority opinion, and of course he is the the, like the champion of originalism. And he relied heavily on the Second Amendment's wording and other indicators of what the framers intended to accomplish to justify his opinion. So his opinion basically emphasized these historical sources, uh, court opinions for one, written, in, written during the framing period, um, other provisions in state constitutions, legal journals, legal treatises, news articles, um, and he formed this historical perspective of what the right to bear arms actually meant in 1789 in the era of the framers. And from this, he concluded, and the majority concluded, that the right to bear arms is an individual right. Um, and how interesting is it that actually 
that this kind of um this kind of originalist interpretation could have easily swung the other way for a different case. For example, we talked about um, Hamdi uh, v. Rumsfeld and the fact that Scalia took a look at the original interpretation, uh, or rather the original intent of the Constitution, and saw that it was the intent of the framers to say that the president cannot just suspend someone's right to go to court. It's only Congress that has that power, right? And in ruling in favor of the defendant in that case, or, or rather the, I guess the victim, the guy who was detained, Scalia made a, a liberal decision with originalism in one case and a conservative decision in originalism with the with District of Columbia v. Heller. Uh, we can contrast this to evolving constitutional theory. So, well, originalism is the constitution is dead. We look at history, we look at the people who wrote the laws, and we evaluate their interpretation of what they meant to say. Um, and then evolving constitutional theory, um, which is basically that uh, the constitutional text should be consulted for answers, but interpreters should look at the consensus of modern American society um, and advances in social science, in actual you know hard science, um, in social norms, and in fundamental, constantly developing human rights principles to kind of get at what the law should be. So let's, I, I mean, constitutional, um, living constitutional theorists kind of see their support in the Ninth Amendment. They say that the Ninth Amendment recognizes that there are implied rights beyond those expressly stated. And the general consensus of every constitutional scholar ever is that, that the framers put that in there because they knew that they probably couldn't think of everything. And the Constitution is not meant to restrict rights. It's only meant to affirm rights. And they wanted to say that just because a right is not affirmed here doesn't mean that someone doesn't have it, right? Um, and evolving constitutionalists kind of agree. And they say that just because the right was not specifically in the law does not mean that someone has not earned the right to observe that. Now, evolving constitutional theories are come under criticism because they tend to support liberal political results. But that's just a fact of, well, the fact, you know, liberal ideology just happens to be more progressive and conservative ideology just happens to be more traditional. Um, but as we've seen before, originalism can easily, even though that it relies on tradition, which is generally a conservative, a place that conservatives find support, um, originalism can easily lead to a liberal decision. Um, in the same way, evolving constitutionalism can lead to a conservative decision. Um, so let's take a look at the 2005 Supreme Court case, Roper v. Simmons. Um, it said that the juvenile death penalty violated the Eighth Amendment ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Um, uh, that was the uh, majority opinion in uh, Roper v. Simmons. And what did they do to reach this conclusion was they looked at modern social sciences studies and they realized that neurological and psychological development of juveniles um, was, was, was less than an adult and it would be cruel and unusual punishment to subject a child, someone who was not fully developed to death. Um, you know, by whatever means the state basically chooses to use. 
Um, and that's kind of the way that evolving constitutionalism works in practice. So I think we've beaten these constitutional theories to death and we've kind of really gone into what influences justice to make decisions. But I promised you last show that I would bring in statistical evidence of the fact that justices, uh, like further evidence that justices don't just vote with their politics. Um, they really vote with their, with one, their legal interpretive theories to their personal experiences, but three, and most of all, they all exercise judicial restraint and they want to have the kind of the authority of, a, you know, a unanimous decision or a, a, a vastly widely supported decision across the ideological spectrum because they understand the importance of maintaining the integrity of the judicial system. And in fact, we will see that most of the time the Supreme Court agrees. So, um, and, and by agrees, I mean that we're going to see a lot of, um, we're going to see a lot of unanimous opinions here. So let me just pull up the, uh, the data set that I'm looking at here and let's go through this kind of systematically. Uh, in 2007, <coughs> excuse me, 2017 to 2018 term, uh, starting when, uh, Gorish joins the court, <coughs> we see that one vote majorities, these are five, four decisions happen less than 20% of the time. Meanwhile, unanimous decisions happen nearly 50% of the time. If we look at an even closer margin, um, when Scalia joined the court first in 1986 to 1987, in that term, we see that one vote majorities happen just about 27% of the time. Whereas unanimous decisions <clears throat> there's a less of a difference here, but they still happen more happen about 32 to 33% of the time. Um, <laughs> what does this mean? Uh, well, clearly we see more unanimous decisions than kind of this weird vote split of ideologies, right? Um, arguably it's impossible to have a balanced court. Uh, you know, we have an odd number of justices for a reason. So we don't constantly encounter ideological tiebreakers. Um, but, what we observe here is really that it's not so much of an issue. It's not as much of an issue as people think because these nine zero decisions happen a lot. Um, and looking at more data here, um, what we're going to see is that justices that you would not expect to agree the majority of the time actually do agree a lot. So let's take a look at these voting patterns and I'm pulling this from SCOTUS blog, which is the official blog of the Supreme Court maintained by the court staff um, and such. We're going to look at, <clears throat> in the October term, starting in uh, October 2017, 39% um, of cases were ruled 9-0. 8% of cases were ruled 8-1. Uh, uh, sorry, 15% of cases were ruled 7-2. Excuse me. And 10% uh, of cases were ruled 6-3. So that leaves only 26% of cases that were ruled 5-4. <coughs> and um, this trend holds very, very strong. Um, there was not an instance from 2010 to 2016 that there were more 5-4 cases than 9-0 cases ever. Uh, not, for, not for this entire 
seven-year period from 2010 term to the 2016 term, all seven of these terms see a very, very large difference from 9-0 uh, decisions to 5-4 decisions. On average, from 2010 to 2016, 50% of cases, half the cases the court heard, are decided by a 9-0 decision. And only 18% are decided by a 5-4 decision, right? So we're, <coughs> we're seeing a very clear case of the fact that ideology is not the most important determining factor. And if we look at the specific voting records of justices, um, there are there are different kind of um, ways that justices agree on cases, right? There's fully agree where they join in the majority opinion or, or they join in part and they kind of have a concurring opinion um, in regards to like a specific issue that they want to clarify or they agree in full, in part, or or only in the judgment. So they don't agree with the opinions expressed in the in the majority opinion, but they do agree with the the fact that the court's ruling was correct. And then of course they can disagree in judgment, which just means that they they dissent. Um, let's take a look at the amount of time that Ginsburg, <coughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and uh, John Roberts agree. Which, by the way, is for the 2017 term, 61% of the time. They agreed 61% of the time. That's a really, really big margin. If you want to look at something more interesting, let's see how much um, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Alito agreed, which was 34% of the time. It's less, but it is a large amount. Um, Another interesting statistic is Kagan and Roberts, who agree 68% of the time. And surprisingly, Kagan and Roberts agree 68% of the time. Kagan and, uh, pardon me, Alito and Roberts agree 69% of the time. So we're <coughs> seeing an extremely similar ratio of agreement um, between justices that are supposedly diametrically opposed. Um, Gorish, the newest member, well, I suppose the second newest member of the court agrees with Roberts 65% of the time. He agrees with Roberts less than Kagan. So what are we looking at here? We're looking at a clear instance of where politics, simple ideological, being an ideological bulwark is not what occurs at the Supreme Court level. There's clearly other factors. I mentioned a few. We mentioned the fact that um, group dynamics are in play here. Um, we mentioned the fact that... Uh, there are uh, different legal interpretive ideologies which play a role and oftentimes lead to a strong difference between what might be a political ideological answer and a legal ideological answer and how sometimes those answers can work opposite to each other. Um, we discussed the fact that personal experiences play a very large role. So there are so many other factors other than politics which play into this whole discussion of judicial bias. Um, hopefully this kind of, this discussion, uh, Tuesday's show, today's show kind of gives you a better idea of the forces working in concert to combat just pure politicization of the Supreme Court. Um, and hopefully this kind of restores faith in the I suppose the sanctity of the Supreme Court and the logic of its rulings, and of course the rulings of federal courts uh, across the country, um, in light of the fact that the media, um, the nomination process, everything has kind of been turned into a political circus. Um, and I definitely say by 
by both parties in Congress um, are responsible for it turning into a political circus. So, um, yeah, I don't know what we're going to talk about next show yet. I haven't ha- thought that far ahead because I got finals coming up. But um, we will be having a show uh, next weekend on Saturday, so please stay tuned for that. It'll be at a more godly hour, uh, I believe 2 to 3 p.m. So, uh, once again, you are listening to UC San Diego's fiercely independent radio station, KSDT, and this is your host, Adarsh Parthasarathy, on the aisle, signing off tonight and hoping that he can get a good night's sleep, even though he is terribly sick. Thank you very much for listening. We are going to uh, hear some wonderful music by Malibu Ken, um, which is called Malibu Ken in a stroke of, well, I suppose what is extreme narcissism, but let's listen to that anyway. Have a good night.